You can pass those bags around, please. That would be marvelous. Right, with no further ado, I'll pass the duck. Right. Thank you, buddy. Well, I don't know what to do. I've got, we're up here way before I'm supposed to be. So, uh, I didn't bring a dance routine this morning. I could do a guess or whatever. Do it. <laughs> How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, Josh. Welcome back, Billy. I guess you all finally got everything moved, didn't you? Josh Munkin's family has been in the midst of a big move. So, uh, I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks, but it's good to, good to see him. Well, I decided I don't normally wear a tie anymore, although I used to always wear a tie. And uh, it's just how things have changed a little bit. And so I, I brought out my Easter tie this morning. I, I really thought I was doing pretty well. You know, I thought, okay, it's all matching, looking sharp, looking good. Felt really good about myself until Jay Coltrane entered into the... <laughs> <laughs> Don't you look sharp this morning? Wow. I just give up. I give up, I tell you. <clears throat> there was a story of a grandfather that uh, was with his granddaughter. And they were sitting down talking about Easter. And he wanted to make sure that she understood about Easter and about the resurrection. And he said, he asked her, he says, uh, honey, can you tell me what you know about Easter? And she said, sure, great daddy. So she, I mean, she just goes through it, you know, Jesus was, was put on a cross and he died for my sin and, and they put him in a grave and and they had a big stone in front of it, and and uh, and he was there for three days. And he said, "Yeah, honey, that's right. He was there for three days." And he said, "She said on the third day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and the stone rolled away, and and he's so proud. Man, he's just like, wow, she is amazing." And he she said, "And Jesus came out of the tomb." And he saw the shadow, and he knew it was going to be six more weeks of winter. So, so yeah, she had most of it. Got most of it. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people have a lot of questions about the resurrection, and we're going to be talking some about that this morning. The title of my message today is called Answers from an Empty Tomb. Answers from an empty tomb, yeah. You know, the last number of weeks we've started a series here at Harvest called The Wives of Life. And just recognize that there's a lot of questions that we all have about life. Why did this happen? Why hasn't it happened? You know, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Where is God in all of that? We all have questions. And we've been, uh, Rifle's done a great job in getting the, the series started. And so we're thinking today, just to continue that series, what were the questions that surrounded this amazing event that we celebrate, that people all over the world have gathered together and uh, that are celebrating the resurrection of Christ? There's a... Um, the passage of scripture that we're going to look at in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 8, that shares about that resurrection morning. You know, it's interesting that because of the significance of the resurrection and the validity of it, that it is the only thing that is that is shared in all the Gospels. You know, as you read the Gospels, you find different things that are maybe shared in three of the Gospels, but not all of them. But, but this account 
of that morning of Jesus being resurrected from the dead, that it's in every form. It's amazing. Because of the significance of the event, that it really is the, the resurrection, the, the, the cross and the resurrection of Christ, really is the cornerstone of all of Christianity. And it's everything that has been set upon that, the foundation of that. And we know the story that that early on a given morning, that third day, that that it says that the, the women and others went to take spices to the tomb to replace and replenish the spices. Because there was already about a hundred pounds of spices that was placed on the body of Jesus when he was put into the tomb. We're thinking about questions this morning. Can you imagine the questions that were in the minds of Jesus' followers? Because surely it did not turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out. Because just simply a week before, Jesus was being celebrated as the king of the Jews. He was entering into Jerusalem with shouts and cheers and praises and people just crowding the streets to, to get a glimpse of Jesus. And how quickly in one week everything had changed. And I'm sure that in the minds of the disciples, in the minds of the followers of Jesus, were questions, what has happened? How has everything changed? God, where is God? Where is God in this? You know, questions like, well, was it my fault? Uh, you know, it recorded in the Bible that, that they, all, they all deserted Jesus. They all ran, deserted Jesus. Questions of what do we do now? We've given our last three years to following this man and believing he was bringing a kingdom to this earth and now it looks like it is not going to happen. It's at the end. My, I just can't imagine the questions. Everybody's, I know that we all at times when things do not turn out the way that we think they are, we get hit with something so devastating and we wonder, God, what are you doing? What is your plan in this? What is your purpose in this? I don't see any plan or purpose in this at all, God, except for my own suffering. We all have questions like that, don't we? We all have things that wonder what is going on. I, I had an opportunity this week to go see Miracles from Heaven. I want to I encourage you. That is a phenomenal movie if you have not seen it yet. Miracles from Heaven. One of the best movies I have ever seen. And it tells the story of this unexplained sickness that has come upon this family's little girl. And questions. They were a Christian family, but all of a sudden struggling with their faith, questions pouring into their minds. Why? Why would God do this to this little girl? Those were the questions that were there. And then we know, we know that God doesn't do that. But those questions are all there. We've all thought those questions, entertained those questions. You know, I remember back when our daughter Anna was in the hospital for such a long amount of time and having to go through the surgeries that she did and, and the, the removal of her large intestine and, and then other things. And there were a lot of questions we had every day of saying, God, we're praying, we're standing, we're doing everything we know to do. Anna's praying, she's standing, believing, doing everything we know to do, God. But yet, we're not seeing what we want to see. And so I'm sure this morning, that morning as they got up and begin to go to the tomb, they, their hope, their mind, their spirit was labored with questions. And it says here in Luke 24, beginning verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found a stone rolled away from the tomb, something they were not expecting. Something that was like, where are the soldiers? Who had enough strength to roll this away from the tomb? 
And then it said that they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, other more questions come in their minds. What is going on? Where is? We remember we placed the body of Jesus into this tomb. How could it be that he's, the body is gone? The wrappings and everything are still here, but the body is gone. And it says that, and it happened after they couldn't find the body of Jesus, they, they, they were greatly perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. More questions. <laughs> what are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you here? And then it says that, then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? What's amazing their, their whole being was flooded with questions. Yet there was one more question that was given to them by the angels. Why do you see the living among the dead? Now the thing about it is that they had no idea that that one question was going to open the doorway for all the answers they ever need. That one question opened the doorway for you and I. That every question that we have in life is found in the answer that the angels give the women here. So they ask you a question, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they give the answer to the very question they just posed. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, scripture says. Like I said, this one question from the angels opens the doorway to every answer that they had that, at that point in time and that we have today. That because he is risen, that he is alive, Jesus will has answered every question that you have about life. And every question that will ever come into your mind, he has already answered that because he is risen and he is alive. And as we seek the risen Savior, and we seek the answers that we strive for and want and desire about life, he is able to bring us into a place of answers and peace and it's amazing. And so at that very time that they, they realized that Jesus truly was risen, it records later that they try to go to Peter and John and James and the disciples and, and they shared that what they had found, and it says in scripture there in Luke, that it seemed to them as they were trying to explain this, the answer that they had come upon, it was like an idle tale. It was like a fairy tale. It's the way it could happen. And of course, Peter, and then in some, in some books it says that John also went, ran to the tomb to see that, that it was true. And then of course we know the story that, that later after that, Jesus appears to them as they had gathered together in a room, proving that, that the resurrection had happened. And it was the beginning for them Answers coming to their questions. I believe that answers from an empty tomb for us this morning. I just want to deal with five questions. Uh, you know, there could be so many other questions that we could deal with this morning. But I just want to deal with five questions this morning that may be in your hearts today or have been in your hearts or will be in your hearts. But five questions that I believe that is answered because there was an empty tomb. The five questions are doubt, loneliness, sin and guilt, death and eternity, and is change possible? Is real change possible? And I, is this the way it's always going to be? Am I always going to struggle in this area? Am I going to always be trapped into this addiction or whatever it is or this mindset 
can, can, can things actually ever, ever change? I want to talk first this morning about the question of doubt. Because it's something that we all experience, right? That we all, at times, that in discerning the truth that's in the gospel, the truth that's in what God has said, doubt can set in. I believe it's one of the most reliable weapons of the enemy of bringing doubt into our minds. I mean, he's been doing it from the beginning. It was the very first thing that he did as he as he encountered Adam and Eve. What did he do? He, he, he brought a measure of doubt into the truth that God had said. And it began to get them questioning what God said wasn't really true. How many of you experience that all the time? You know, that in life itself, especially when something happens, something goes wrong, whatever, that the enemy, first thing that he does, he brings doubt in. He opposes that truth. He brings doubt into your minds. And as you begin to reflect upon the doubt and you begin to focus on the doubt, fear enters in to your heart at that time. So the question of doubt, like I said, it is one of those things that, that, that uh, occurs in every believer's life, I believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's amazing that one chapter there, Paul's dealing with a doubt. Paul's dealing with a, 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 a lie that has been sown into the church. And it has to do about with resurrection. And it began to be a question of whether the validity of resurrection for the believer, will a believer actually be resurrected, you know, or not? And so he begins to deal with this doubt that is creeping in to this early church and begins to answer the questions that they had about resurrection. And then I encourage you to go to that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to hit on a couple of verses of it today. But to see what he had to say, because it's amazing the argument that Paul lays out there as he begins to just deal with the doubt that has entered into the hearts of this early church. And he says, he says that if this is really true, if the resurrection is not for us, not for the believer, then neither was it for Jesus. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 through 19. And he says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Because you're believing a fantasy, you're believing a lie, you're believing a fake, or whatever it is. If Christ didn't really rise from the dead, he says, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in, in this life only we have the hope of the resurrection, and it's not true, we are all, we are of all men the most pitiable. So he deals with the thing that if, if, if the resurrection is not true in doubt, then it has these effects. Christ was not risen from the dead. Your sins are not dealt with. Eternity has not been bought for you. And we are, we are delusional and we are to be pitied among, above all other people. But the fact is, is that in, in, in answering this question of doubt, of resurrection, that we know it's true. The resurrection gives us three options, not only three options. One, it was a fake. It was a great scheme, a great pull-off, man, that these, that these disciples had done. They staged this where after the death of Christ, they decided they would come and they would attack the Roman soldiers, the 16 Roman soldiers that were there. They decided they would roll the big stone out of the way, decided they would steal the body of Jesus and unwrap it from all the linen cloth and everything that he was wrapped in. They would break the Roman seal on the tomb, 
which would mean their death because of what they had done. So it either was a fake or it was a fantasy. It was just something that was spun. Something that, and as years went by, that it just gained momentum in this grand thing of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it just, time went on, it just kind of, it's like the fish story, the fish got bigger and bigger. And after what you really caught was a miniature fish. And it just got bigger and bigger every time you told it. So was it a fantasy or what? In reality, was it fact? Did it really happen? And if it really happened, then it changes all of history. It changes everything. It changes everything because Christ is alive. And in the, the sacrifice that he's made, your sins are forgiven. That relationship can happen between you and the Father. Eternity can happen. I love this quote by guy named D.A. Carson, he's a theologian, he says, the cross, this is not on a, on, a, on a slide, but the cross and the resurrection tie together as the turning point of the ages on which all of history swings. And it really is true. It really is true. So, I believe that there's three evidences that help to 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 solve or to or to, to answer the question of doubt. There are three pieces of evidence. One, I believe, is the empty tomb. Two, I believe, is multiple witnesses. And thirdly, are changed lives. Like I said, that they put Jesus in a place that they ensured that he would never come out of. He was put, we all know, in a solid rock tomb. So there was no other way to get into it. His body was extensively wrapped into, in linen cloth. His body was covered with over 100 pounds of spices. There was a, they estimated at least a two-ton stone that was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And then there was a guard of a, at least 16 Roman soldiers that were there because the rumors had gotten out that because of, the, of the, the prophetic word that Jesus said, even about himself, that in three days I would rise again. And so they were ensuring that, that no one could come and steal this body. Sixteen trained, battle-equipped Roman soldiers there, ready to defend. And then lastly, there was a seal placed upon the, above the, the tomb, Basically, meaning if this seal is ever broken, then, then it means death to the person or person that had broken that seal. Well, I'll tell you, yet in all of this, all of the, the, the measures they took, all the things they did on that morning, on that third day, with questions swirling in their minds, the women came upon an empty tomb. I want to tell you today that I believe the empty tomb validates the claim of Christ that he would indeed rise again. The second thing I believe that, that brings validity to this lie, the second thing I believe is multiple witnesses. That they say that the scripture says that there were over 500 witnesses of Christ, of seeing Christ after his resurrection. It says that there were over 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus on 12 different occasions over a period of 40 days. It's one of the things that Paul dealt with is he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes this out, For I delivered to you first of all that which is also was received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again a third day according to scripture. And he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, speaking of Jesus' brother. Then by all the apostles. And then at last all, he was seen also by me, as one born out of due time. The fact is, is that 
the validity of the resurrection of Jesus was echoed again and again and again and again from all the people that encountered Christ after the resurrection. So there were people in the first how many years? 30, 40, 50, 60 years of, of the birth of the church that had actually encountered Christ. They could tell others of their experience and that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. So because of the, the eyewitnesses that were there that it brings and what they have written in scripture for us and what was recorded down in historical documents by people like Josephus and others that we know that that uh, the resurrection is true because of the eyewitnesses. And then lastly because of changed lives. That something happened within these this meager group of followers that so changed their life that they turned the world upside down and they gave their lives. So we must most of us know that of the the original apostles, all except for John, were martyred. Terrible deaths. And what would bring a person to the place of giving their lives for a lie? Or giving their lives for something they just made up? A, 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 a fairy tale. I don't believe there are many people would give up their life for something like that. But the thing about it is that because of the change that has occurred in their life, it says in Romans chapter 8, it speaks about that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now within us as we have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, that it can, it can bring change in our lives, in our bodies. It can bring enormous change. We all sit here today. How many of you, I want to just raise your hand, that you have experienced change in your life because of a resurrected Savior? Put your hands up. Stand up. I want you to look around this morning. These are people that didn't imagine it, didn't make it up. That change has actually happened in their life. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? All right. Tell the person next to you. All right. Way to go. Praise God. Let's very quickly move on here. The second question that is dealt with that I believe is answered because of the empty tomb is the question of loneliness. We all at times feel this. We all at times have wondered, do I matter? It's one of the greatest questions that we all have that has to be answered. Does my life really matter? Is there anyone noticing my life? Does anyone care about my life? And many people have gone through all sorts of things because of loneliness. People commit suicide because of loneliness. People get involved in all sorts of things to try to medicate the pain they feel on the inside. And all the time, that question, am I the only one, does my life matter? Does anybody really care about me? Was answered over 2,000 years ago. When Christ come out, came out of the tomb, being raised from the dead, that question was answered then. That the resurrection proves that you matter to God. The resurrection proves that you matter to God. That your sins are forgiven. That there's new life for you. That you have been, have been given the opportunity to be reunited with the Father. I love that. I was watching something the other day about the, the crucifixion. I was looking as they were nailing Jesus to the cross. There was gigantic, call them nails, but I call them spikes that were hammered into Jesus' palm and wrist. And to his feet, that he would be attached to that cross. A lot of people feel like, well, that's what it, that's what held him to the cross. I want to tell you this morning, it wasn't that that held him to the cross. It was the love that Jesus had for every one of you that held him to that cross. 
Thank you, Jay. It was his love. Jesus said that at any time he had, could have called for a, for a legion of angels to come, he could have stepped off the cross any time. But what held him to the cross was not the nails, but it was the love that he had for you, the love of knowing that what he had to do, he had to do so that you would be re reunited with the Father, that you would experience the joy of knowing God, that you would experience what eternity has for you and me. It was that. It was that that held him to the cross. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. It is this love. In this is love. Not that we are not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, or to be the substitute for our sins. I just want to encourage you. Loneliness, the feelings of loneliness, that question, do I matter? Does God, where is God? Is God interested in what's going on with my life right now? It's all been answered. It's all been answered. That question has been answered because of the resurrection. That you do matter to God. You do matter to God. What about the question of guilt and sin? One of those questions I believe that haunts people. That they can't get past it. Can't get past their past mistakes, their past sins. They can't get beyond that covering of guilt and shame that's all their life and it holds them back. Holds them back from really finding all that God has for them or uh, uh, really enjoying this life because they're always reminded and the question is always there, am I really forgiven? Can my guilt be taken away from me? The shame that I feel because of my mistakes. I want to tell you, the resurrection is God's final proof that he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as your sin substitute. Jesus came to take your sins, my sin, our mistakes, our, our amazing goof-ups upon himself. He took that upon himself. He has answered the question of sin. I mean, just think about it. Just take a moment and think that every sin that you ever committed or would ever commit is taken care of already. Is taken care of already. And it says that there is no condemnation, there is no guilt found in those that are in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Joy said that, that, that my life is not defined by my sin any longer. My life is defined by a person that lives on the inside of me. And that his spirit lives on the inside of me. And because of that, I'm a new person. I'm a new creation, as Scripture says. When we think about that, we know how true that is. But why? Why do we get so trapped in and encumbered by those thoughts, those feelings, those things of, is it really true? You know, what do I have to do to get, to get past this mistake that I did or whatever it is? You don't have to do anything other than repenting before the Father. That's all you have to do. It's all settled. Knowing that your sins are taken, it was taken upon the body of Jesus and was, as he hung on the cross, your sins hung there with him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Mm -hmm. He says that we are to become, we are to become the righteousness of God in him. Sin does not define who you are. Amen. You're not a sinner because of what Jesus has done. You are a saint. You are 
a son and daughter of the living God. Isn't that amazing? What about the question of death and eternity? One of those greatest questions that we have of what happens when I die. There was a, there was a uh, back, way back when, there was a cassette. At least I didn't say hate track. There was, a, there was a cassette that was put out by the famous last words of Christians and those who were unbelievers of what they vocalized, what they said upon their deathbeds. And uh, I wish I could get another copy of it. It was so powerful. The difference of those that were Christians and they had a hope and they knew, they knew the answer to their death. They knew the answer of eternity and of those that didn't. And those that were staring death in the face, they had no hope. They had nothing to look forward to. They, they only had questions that had not been answered because they had never turned to Christ. But I, I just remember uh, it was the most amazing cassette that was put out by, um, I think it was put out by Francis Frangipane, I believe. And uh, powerful, powerful of knowing the great, greatest question of what happens when I die. I tell you, the resurrection proclaims to you and I there is life beyond the grave. There is life beyond the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 said, For since by man came death, by man, capitalized, talking about Jesus, by this man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. I want to tell you, because Jesus is alive, guys, because Jesus is alive, death will never have the final word. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? <clears throat> this past Thanksgiving, my mom went, went home with the Lord. And we had a funeral service for her. And it was, it was such a celebration of our life. Such a celebration. Because anyone that knew mom, they knew her her life in Christ, her love for Jesus. They knew it. And so we just, the, the funeral service was about her, was testimonies about her, remembrances about her, and a, a life, a person that lived her life so well because of her belief in Jesus. And it was not sorrowful, but it really was joyous. It was amazing because of the hope that she had in Jesus, then we all shared that, you know, she's not going through the machinery of some reincarnated thing, that she may come back as a squirrel or something like that, you know, <laughs> that, but we knew that she was standing in the presence of the Lord because Jesus was raised from the dead. And because of that, that death and eternity was settled once and for all. I love this out of 1 Peter 1.3. It says, what a God, this is the, the out of the message Bible. It says, what a God we have. I love that. What a God we have. He is amazing. And how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And I love it. And the future starts now. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? From the moment that you accepted Christ into your life, heaven started right then for you. It's not one day when I finally get to go to heaven. I want to tell you that in his kingdom, because Jesus prayed that the, the, the king, his kingdom, which was in heaven, was to be here all, all upon the earth, that you're living, you're experiencing heaven right now. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. Last question here, guys. Is change really possible? I would say that we're all seated here today and we're all dealing with some type of change. And the question comes is that, can it really happen? Can my fears be changed? Can my sins, my addictions, my thoughts, my identity, 
Romans chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. It says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should also walk in newness of life. It doesn't say that you might walk in newness of life. There's a possibility that you might walk in newness. If you've done enough, you will walk in newness of life. If you're a really good person, maybe just made a couple of mistakes, you're walking in a newness of life. And it says no, that we also should walk in a newness of life because of Christ was raised from the dead. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if, it's, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There was a fam there's a family in our church that this year was quite a year of change for them. Quite a year of dealing, grappling with change. Um, most of you know Jill and John, there they are out there. That, uh, you know, John this past year was diagnosed with a brain tumor that had come back and they said it was about the size of a grapefruit, I think, isn't that right? Pretty big. Yeah, okay. Size of a kumquat, you know, whatever kumquat. But I, I watched, I, 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 was, I had the, really had the pleasure of watching this family and seeing them deal with not too good of news of whether, how will this affect John's life? John's an airline pilot and flies all over the world. You know, how will that affect his life? You know, he, will he be the same after the, after the surgery? Will he make it through the surgery? Then watch Jill and the things that she was going through. And I asked Jill if she would come up this morning and just share with us for a little bit about the change that she experienced in her own life. Because it really is a glorious story. It really is a phenomenal story. Not only how God brought change over John and healing over him, but just a change that comes about in all our lives when we face impossible moments, difficult moments in life. And we wonder, can I make it through? And you're feeling all the grips of fear and uncertainty and uncertainty. Can I change? So Joe, can you come up here, honey? Welcome to Joe Gross. About it. You're great. You're awesome. Oh, my goodness. I purposed in my mind this morning that when I got up here, I would acknowledge how many of you there are. And there are a lot of you. <clears throat> wow, there's butterflies. Pastor Doug, Pastor Wright, on our time, we make this look so easy. So Holy Spirit, just come, please come. At first, I don't usually speak for my husband, but I would like to thank all of you for praying. It was quite a summer. It was a blessed summer, an amazing summer. But we felt your prayers. We felt the prayers of this family, and I want to thank you very much. I also, my parents are here today, and I'd like to give them honor. I've been taught in this house that we honor and as a little child, my mother and my father blessed me with the gift of faith. They planted seeds in me that they didn't know. So thank you. When Holy Spirit brought us to this house about two years ago, I was madly in love with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I came to we would come and I would watch people, but it was different here. And I started hearing people speak of the love of Daddy. I never referred to the Father, God Almighty, as Daddy. And I would hear Pastor Rifle, Miss Cindy, Pastor Doug, Elizabeth Leith, praise and worship and praying to Daddy. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I came and I watched. And my heart started to desire 
this childlike innocence of this daddy's love for most of my life I've struggled with fear and most of my life I love daddy so much and felt so blessed that I just wanted to work and give back to him as much as I could. So every morning I would wake up and I'd ask him if I could just bless him and please him. Every night I went to bed, would he just say, well done, my daughter? But there was something here that people had that I really yearned and wanted. And this past summer, as we embarked on this journey that my husband and I had, I, I believe that God could heal my husband miraculously. And I thought that's what my testimony was going to be, that we didn't even need the surgery. That was not the case. We did have the surgery. I had been involved in Monday night's prayer and healing rooms. I'd seen legs grow out. I was blessed by Bob and Betsy, Rifle, all the others in prayer and healing rooms. And I saw miracles happen. I saw Jesus work through our hands. And I believed and I stood that God was going to heal my husband. So as soon as we all heard, people started calling from this family. And you started coming to our home. Pastor Doug and Cindy prayed immediately and loved on us. Pastor Rifle spent a day and he said... You know what, John, I've been here all day. Let's pray. And I was like, yeah, let's pray. And he said, what do you need? And John said, this pain in my head, it feels like an ice pick. It needs to go away. And I was ready. And Pastor Rifle said, Jill, I want you to listen to this first. And I thought, why does he want me to listen to this? Usually when Pastor Rifle tells me something, I usually listen. So I put those headphones on. I listened to that song. And it was titled, No Longer a Slave to Fear. He knew that I had battled fear most of my life. And I listened to this song, and he said, are you ready? I said, no, I need to listen one more time. I suppose this was different, I didn't realize, but praying over your husband of 28 years is a little different than praying over a stranger. John has been a sense of strength in our family. He's calm, exact opposite of me, but he's been my strength for all those years, and he takes care of everything. And I guess there was fear. So I listened to the song the second time and fear just completely left. Because in the words it says, I'm a child of God. I didn't yet get understand that. I know it. Yes, I'm a child of God, but I didn't understand So I said, yes, pastor, let's go, Rifle, let's pray. And we placed hands on John's head and Rifle prayed. We, we prayed and I said, when he was done, I said, I'm not to take my hand away. Typical rifle, he said, don't take your hand away. And he sat down, and I kept my hand on his hand. It got hotter and hotter. And when I pulled it away, rifle said, John, how do you feel? And he shook his head and said, the pain is gone. So we praised God, and I was like, yes, he is going to do this. Jesus is going to heal this too. Take it away. So we were scheduled to go out to UCLA. We went out, and we met the doctor. We were scheduled for a four-hour surgery. And while we were there, they took pictures measuring the size of John's tumor. And I kept asking, I guess within an hour of meeting with this doctor, I said three times, I asked him, would you recheck that size of that tumor? And he said to me, Mrs. Gross, why are you so concerned? I told you three times it hasn't changed. I looked at my husband to get the okay, and he shook his head. And I said, I'll tell you, I'm standing on that this is going to be healed miraculously by Jesus, and that we don't need that surgery tomorrow. And he said, well, Mrs. He started to laugh. And I said, Dr. Yang, I didn't mean to offend you. I never mean to offend anyone with my faith. And he said, no, if you like, Mrs. Gross, we can sit here all day and let's share about the love of Jesus. And tears started. He said, but you know what? We have to bring John back in a month. So I'll tell you what. You go home and you pray and you stand like you've been doing. And when you come back, I promise you I'll test and I'll re-measure that tumor. And I'll tell you what, Mrs. Gross, if God chooses to miraculously heal that, heal that tumor, then you and I will stand there and praise and worship God together and thank him. But if he chooses to use my hands as the gift that he gave me to surgically take that tumor out, then at the end of a very long day for me, you and I together will praise God and thank him for miraculously healing that tumor. So he reached out to me and said, is that a deal, Mrs. Gross? And I said, yes. So I came home, and that gave me four more weeks to pray even harder. And that is how I thought. So four weeks I pressed in, and I prayed even harder. And I claimed it. Healing, I laid hands after hands after hands, the children. 
By week two, I could sense that the tumor was still there, and I went into the fields, and I grabbed my Bible, because Pastor Rifle once said in Raymond Mission Ministry Sermon, go alone in a deserted place and rest for a while. So I took my Bible, and I went to the field. To me, it felt like I was there for two hours, probably only 15 minutes, and I said, Father, I'm not hearing you. What's, what am I doing wrong? What am I missing? I heard nothing, and I kept telling him, I don't hear you, I don't hear you, and after a while, I thanked him and praised him, and I got up and I walked back, and I was walking back to the field, I heard very clearly, sever all life supply to this tumor. I dropped my Bible next to the creek, and I severed in Jesus' name. It always seems to be that there's three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and me, and we're all there in this oneness, as Pastor Chip once preached a long time ago to me, the oneness of, of all of them. And it was that oneness we had in the name of Jesus. We claimed that that tumor was severed, all life supply. Afterwards, I heard that it was done. I picked up my Bible, I went home. I never said a word to anyone. That very same day, John and I were coming home from Richmond. And he said, I have to tell you something, Jill. Something's wrong. I said, what's the matter? He said, something's different in my head. I said, what do you mean? He said, it feels like the tumor is just a ball wrapped in saran wrap sitting there. I started to chuckle and laugh, and I said, praise God, I have a story to tell you. So now this was even more impetus for me to press even harder because I knew in Jesus' name he was going to take this tumor away. So I pressed even harder, and I pressed even harder. By week four, I could tell that I was becoming a little anxious, a little nervous, to say the least. But one day, I was so distraught, I called Pastor Rife, and I said, I'm not sure what's going on, but what, am I, what if I'm praying the wrong way? What if I'm commanding I should be asking? What if I'm asking and not commanding? And then what should I do? Should I pack for four days because I told the children I'd be back in four days, or should I pack for more days? And by the way, Pastor Reich, well, should I take some children with me or should I not? What's going to please God? And I think, bless his heart, he's so used to me talking and talking. Sometimes he says, I think too much. And finally, in this patient way, he said, Jill, listen, stop. And he said, it doesn't matter how many days you pack for. It doesn't matter how many people you take with you. It doesn't even matter how you pray. Your daddy loves you. I got frustrated and get it. So I said, thank you very much. I hung up the phone a couple days later. We came to church the very last time. Nicole and Greg came to us. I went, yes, she must have a word that this tumor is gone. So she took us out front and a couple days we were leaving for L.A. And she said, Jill, you have to understand the love of daddy. And I started to weep. And I said, I, I've been in church. I know. I love my father so much. She said, you have to understand the daddy's love for you. And I wept and I cried. And I said, I didn't understand. Afterwards, we missed Pastor Doug's whole sermon. We came in and Pastor Doug and Miss Cindy pulled us back. And she sat down with me. And she said, you know what? It doesn't matter who you take with you. Daddy loves you no matter what. And it was these statements that I had asked that from heaven, that revelation of the daddy's love would just drip down upon me. And I couldn't get it. When we were leaving, Pastor Rifle came to me and he said, Jill, I want you to do something. You know the verse? I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I said, yes. And he said, wait a minute, Jill. Don't say anything. Now I want you to say, and my daddy loves me with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to say that 10,000 times every day. Little did he know that there was a part of me that thought, okay, I need to say this 10,000 times a day. So I believe I texted him and said, I'm up to about 25 or so. And he said, I was only kidding. But every time I started saying that, and my daddy loves me, I got this little smile on my face. But I didn't quite get it. I looked at my children and I decided, you know what, I told them all that I was standing the day I was going to be healed, so I was packed for four days. I didn't take anybody with me. We were there for five weeks, right? So when we got out there, the doctor called us on Sunday. They did the picture and the doctor called and said, John, I'll see you tomorrow and surgery. The tumor is still there. My heart crushed. I immediately heard in my ear, see that gift. And what I heard was the enemy saying to me, he's taking that gift of healing away. Oh my. 
and I struggled and I struggled and I thought, what did I do wrong? What did I miss? I knew I'm not the one healing, but I must not be pleasing daddy somehow. The next morning, I, typical John, he was very calm and I said goodbye to him. They wheeled him off and I was crying, kept telling me everything was going to be fine. I tried to find a garden at UCLA at this hospital and I went to the garden and I had a cell phone. And this arrow kept beeping. I was in the garden. I was crying. I felt very alone. A heaviness was over me in this arrow. I didn't know what to do with the arrow, so I just kept beeping, so I pushed it. And all of a sudden, I heard the leaders here, Pastor Doug, Rifle, Miss Faith, Lee Nicole, perhaps the Barclays. I heard them just praying and tongue praying for us, for John and for me. We're in L.A., and they thought of us on a Monday. And all of a sudden, this fear just left. And I felt so much love for them, Ronnie. I felt so much love that that heaviness left and that joy just started filling me. And I started getting the giggles like I do sometimes. And I kept playing it and playing it all morning long and all day. And I think people were just thinking I was a little crazy in this huge place. But every time I hold it up to my ear and I kept getting the giggles and laughing, it was probably a really good day I had. And this, unbeknownst to me, the Holy Spirit packed in my suitcase this string. And on this string was a, about four or five light bulbs from small to largest. And that morning when I felt so much fear and I heard Pastor Doug's voice, the light bulb went off, turned on. That afternoon, one of the surgeons called and said, Mrs. Gross, John's fine, but I've been responsible for taking out the tumor. And I must tell you something. Of all my years of surgery, this perhaps is the strangest one I've ever performed. I thought it would take hours and I would be done at 7 tonight. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I must tell you, Mrs. Gross, that tumor was just like a ball sitting in his head. All I had to do was scoop it out. And this huge, this next light bulb, the next light bulb on my string turned on. And I heard in my ear, Daddy. So we went on, and that evening we went up to see John in intensive care and neurology. And I did call last minute the boys on Sunday night. Jed came out and flew out. And they were there with me, and we were walking back into ICU. and. Jeb looked at me and we heard this man preaching. And I said, who was that preaching? We kept walking back and John was supposed to be in the last seat, the last bed. And Jeb looked at me and said, that's dad. And I opened up the curtain and I said, John, he said, Jill, get your phone and record this. God is right here. Do you see him? He has healed me. Do you see Jesus standing here in front of us? He is here. Tell everyone in this place. God is alive. Healing is alive. It's real. I couldn't find my phone. And I was so dumbfounded. I looked at the nurse and I apologized. I said, I'm so sorry. He must be on so much pain medicine. And he looked at me, the nurse, he said, Mrs. Gross, your husband hasn't been on any pain medicine since he's left the, the operating room. And from the time they wheeled him in here, he has been speaking this truth. Every doctor, every nurse that goes by, he's telling them. And he said, Mrs. Gross, do you know there are 24 beds on this side of the hall and there are 24 on that side? And the only thing between us are drapes, curtains. Can you imagine? And John looked at me and he said, I'm going to walk in circles in one hour. I said, I don't think you can get up. And he said, in one hour, I'm going to walk in circles. In one hour, John was walking circles. And all he would say is, it's just God. And the doctors and the nurses said, no one walks in circles here. John walked in circles. We went on to another unit and he was doing much better, praising God every time we went back to the guest house hotel. And while we were there, he was doing well, still walking, praising God we were. And all of a sudden, John took a turn for the worst. We ended up back in the hospital for what, three weeks perhaps? 
And while he was there, I heard in the back of my ear, I was all confused, wondering what's going on. In the back of my ear, I heard, the enemy is mad. The devil. Holy Spirit has used his tongue, and now he's going to take him out from behind the knees. And all I knew to do was to stand. So I stood, and I was working on this, thinking about what I was going to say, looking back, and I felt these arms behind me. Remember, I said at the very beginning of this testimony, I would come in here and I would hear people talk about the daddy's love, his arms around you. And all through those three or four weeks, I felt his arms around me. One day, it was my birthday out there, and I was kind of lonely, and I went out for a walk. John was sleeping. And it was the first time, I believe, I ever spoke the word daddy out loud. I had missed my children terribly, but I really missed my golden retrievers. I don't know if Jeb's in the room. Sorry. And I had asked. I said, Father, we, God Almighty, Jesus, we just, I see all these dogs, people walk out there, but can you just show me a golden retriever? And sure enough, I turned the corner and there was this golden retriever. And I remember saying for the first time, thank you, Daddy. And this huge light bulb went off. When we came back, finally to Virginia, we were so blessed. People would come and I got back, if you remember, last week Pastor Reichel spoke about taking off the old man and he didn't stop there, he said put on the new man. And when we put on that new man, we didn't pick that old man back up. But when I came back to Virginia, I had picked up that old man. I had received that revelation of the daddy's love. But I immediately wanted to get busy again because I wanted to praise him so much. And Pastor Doug came and he said, it's time to rest. Daddy just wants you to rest. And that huge light bulb went off. And so for about two months, I just rested in Daddy's arms. We would go every day. Sometimes we would talk. Sometimes not a word was said, but I just rested. And I praised him. And Pastor, I know you just told me of two minutes, but the last light bulb is really important. I'm sorry. Can I do that, Pastor? Don't apologize. Just do sorry. it. Sorry. And this is the most important thing. Those two months I rested, and I had this older sister who I loved terribly. For the past 18 years, she hasn't wanted to have a thing to do with me. And she came down to visit my mother, and it breaks my heart, and it's quite painful for me. But she came down a couple months ago to visit my mother, and I was allowed to go see her just for a lunch. And that Friday night before the Saturday's lunch, I tossed and turned all night long, and I got up the next morning and Jeb said, Mom, aren't you going to the Ronnie's, the farmhouse, the women's lunch? And I said, no. No. He said, why not? I said, because your father tells me I wear my feelings, my emotions on my sleeves, and I don't want the luncheon to be about me. Jeb looked at me and said, pride, go. So I went. While I was there, of course, in about five minutes, they all said, Jill, you look terrible. You need prayer. So as they were praying, John was right. As they were praying, Barbara Bishop, in the midst of the praying, spoke these words. Angels will go before you. And that last light bulb on that string flickered and was very dim. And suddenly I was filled with all this love of Jesus. And I thought, yes, I can do this. I get this daddy's love. Now I can take daddy into that place. So I went there and it was probably one of the best days I've ever had in my life. I went into the place and I saw my sister and I was so filled with this love, indescribable daddy's love. But the look I got on her, I knew I wasn't to go wrap my arms around her. And for the next five hours, I was completely rejected from my sister. And the more I was rejected, the more love that was just filled in my heart. And I was so high on cloud nine that I started getting the giggles in the house and the whole way to the dinner. And when we were at dinner, my aunt and uncle came with me and they said, you know, Joe, we have to say something. When you came into that place, it's as if you brought the presence of God into that house. And I said, praise God. It's not me. Some powerful women at Ronnie's house. So the next day, and I'm closing, Pastor, all the ladies came up to me and said, Jill, how was the... I said, it was the best, one of the best days of my life. And they said, great, right? You know... You got back with your sister, reconciliation. I said, no, she rejected me for five hours straight. 
And Ronnie looked at me and Ronnie said, Jill, he took every sting for you. And that last light bulb, Pastor, shone so brightly that Daddy's love took everything from me. It didn't matter that she rejected me because Daddy's arms were all you, many of you spoke about every Sunday. Cindy, I get it. Pastor Rifle, I get it. I get this. This is, this is new. This is different. I believe the Holy Spirit and God Almighty wants us to usher in this kingdom living. And I believe that we cannot usher in this kingdom living until we understand our true identity in Jesus and God. We are daddy's girls and we are daddy's little boys. And once we come into this awareness, wow, the kingdom is just going to flood this earth. So I implore any of you today, I'm done, Pastor. But if there's anyone here today, my heart's desire, I sat in one of these seats for months, and I yearned to have what I saw in Pastor Doug and Cindy and Rifle and so many of you. If there's anyone here today that's sitting, maybe I was the only one. But I ask that you would just close your eyes and ask that God would just pour down that revelation of the daddy's love over you. completed our introduction to our message today and uh, <laughs> that was awesome Jill so amazing 